speaking of which, Supervisor Hilda Solis is at the podium, so let's listen in live. The USC Dornsife Public Exchange, led by Dr. Kayla DeHay, Assistant Professor of Preventive Medicine at USC, provides the first comprehensive analysis of the COVID-19 pandemic's impact on food insecurity in Los Angeles County. The USC team worked in close coordination with our county's emergency food security branch under a strategic partnership. Food insecurity refers to disruptions in food access and regular eating because of limited money or other resources. It's often associated with hunger, but it also leads to many negative physical and mental health outcomes in children and adults. USC's research identified several important findings. During the first four full months of the pandemic, one in four LA County households experienced food insecurity. That's an estimated 873,000 households. The majority of adults who experience food insecurity anytime between April and July are low income, female, Latino, black, or 18 through 40 years of age. Major risk factors include having a low household income, being unemployed, and being a single parent. The unprecedented rates of food insecurity created by the pandemic are improving. They peaked in April through May 2020 at 26% and declined to 10% through June to July. However, they remain significantly higher than pre-pandemic levels and are very concerning. Low-income populations and communities of color who are being hardest hit by the pandemic are also those suffering the most from sustained food insecurity. Food insecurity is known to compromise the quality of people's diets. And this research found that people who experienced food insecurity during the pandemic had unhealthy changes to their diet. This is likely to worsen existing food and health disparities. Additionally, high-income households rarely experience food insecurity, but the surge in food insecurity during the pandemic has affected this demographic as well. One in five households that experienced food insecurity during the pandemic were not low income. However, there's also some good news. The research indicated that food and financial assistance programs appear to help people transition from food insecurity to food security during the pandemic. Many food assistance programs have been launched, adapted, or expanded to address food insecurity during this crisis. For example, the county's elder nutrition program has more than doubled the number of meals it provides per month. CalFresh enrollment has also increased. Importantly, the study found that among households who experienced food insecurity at the beginning of the pandemic, those who were enrolled in CalFresh were more likely to become food secure by July than those who weren't enrolled. We already knew that CalFresh was a critical food safety net for low-income families, and this research shows just how important it is to get households who are eligible for CalFresh enrolled into the program. Within the immigrant community, many are concerned about CalFresh and the public charge, as you may have seen or heard stories about this. But let me be clear, public charge does not affect all immigrants. Refugees, asylees, survivors of trafficking, domestic violence, and other humanitarian immigrants are not affected. If you are unsure about your circumstances, you can contact your immigration attorney or the Office of Immigrant Affairs at one 800 593 8222 or visit oia.lacounty.gov to be connected to a free or low-cost immigration attorney. Other food programs like WIC or Meals for Seniors and Students are not considered a public charge. 
please visit the county's food resources website at covid19.lacounty.gov food to learn more about the variety of food resources available to LA County residents. The county will continue to expand its food assistance programs this fall, starting with increasing the number of food distribution events held in partnership with the LA Regional Food Bank for two to three each week. Additionally, the county is using the USD's studies findings to inform the development of a COVID food assistance grant program, which will fund community organizations that are providing additional forms of food assistance to people in need affected by the pandemic. Details on the program will be available soon. You know, throughout the pandemic, childcare programs have remained open and serving families. Currently, over 4,000 licensed childcare programs are open in LA County. Childcare is the backbone of our economy and parents seeking childcare are facing financial hardships as the economy starts to recover. On July 21st, the LA County Board of Supervisors approved $15 million of CARES Act funding for childcare vouchers to serve several essential workers and low-income families. This funding will provide 5,000 low-income families and essential workers with childcare through December 30th of 2020. I want to thank the LA County Department of Public Health Office of Advancement of Early Care in Education and in partnership with the Child Alliance for, of Los Angeles, who is leading this effort. LA County has a strong system of agencies that can process applications for vouchers and connect families to ch child care. Eligible families must be either essential workers or low-income working families. Families who are eligible include parents who work in health care services, emergency services, food and agriculture, transportation, critical manufacturing, and a range of other essential services and other low-income families working in the business sectors. Families seeking childcare may apply for a voucher by completing an online application at ccala.net. And for further information or assistance, you may call 888-922-CHILD, C-H-I-L-D, or 888-922-4453. Once the family completes the online application, it is automatically routed to a local partner agency for processing. Once approved, families will be able to use the voucher with any licensed child care program or trust line approved license exempt provider, family, friend, neighbor in LA County. And I wanna thank the Department of Public Health for setting up this program along with our partner, the Child Care Alliance of Los Angeles. And to all the essential workers providing child care, we thank you. If you need childcare, please consider this program. It was created to serve you. Thank you, and with that, uh, we will now hear from Dr. Barbara Ferrer. Uh, thank you so much, Supervisor Solis and the entire Board of Supervisors. Uh, your commitment to protecting the health of all residents across LA County, including those who are at greatest risk, has been an inspiration and a guiding force for all of us. And good afternoon, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, today I'm going to provide uh, an, an update on the indicators that we're using to understand how well we do as a county to slow the spread of COVID-19 and what we know from our past experiences about the factors that influence the numbers of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths across both the entire population and among those groups that are disproportionately impacted 
by, by the virus. Uh, we have made a lot of progress reducing transmission in LA County since we experienced that surge in cases, hospitalizations, and deaths starting in mid-July. And as we consider our future reopenings, we're going to use the lessons we learned from our past and the community transmission indicators to guide decisions regarding reopening sectors and permitting uh, additional activities. When we move forward on our recovery journey and additional sectors reopen, it will remain important to understand how increased intermingling among non-household members affects community transmission of this virus. And let's start with a review of our recovery met metrics, um, which we follow every week to understand how we're slowing the spread of COVID-19. And as you can see uh, from our first slide here, um, these are daily reported cases from April through this week. Um, and you can see on here that our cases um, started dropping significantly from the beginning of August through the start of September so that now we've been seeing below 1,000 cases per day. Uh, this is a similar number to what we saw if you look on this table uh, in early May, and that was before we started our reopenings. Uh, we have seen, uh, and you can see this sort of at the tail end of the trend line, a slight increase in cases recently, uh, which we're watching closely, especially because these increases are happening after the Labor Day weekend. I'll take the next slide. Um, this slide shows the, our percent of test positivity or the percentage of tests um, that are done and come back positive. The test positivity rate is influenced by how much community transmission is happening and the availability of widespread testing. And you can see this clearly uh, on this trend line. At the beginning of the pandemic, when we had very limited testing capacity, tests were prioritized only for those people who were sick and our test positivity rate was super high. It was at 16%. Under the safer at home orders and increased test capacity, our test positivity rate dropped from mid-April through May. With reopenings, we saw increases through July in test positivity rates. And then as we reclosed sectors, more people took precautions. We doubled our testing capacity. We've seen that our test positivity rate has dropped again. Um, and you can see that the test positivity rate has fallen significantly from an average about 8% in July when we were peaking in terms of our case numbers to about 3% in this early part of September. We'll take the next slide. We do continue to track the daily number of people with COVID-19 that are hospitalized so we can understand the impact of COVID-19 on the healthcare system. Similar to the previous uh, two charts, there has been a continued decline in the number of people hospitalized for COVID-19 since the end of July. We've been below 1,000 hospitalized patients uh, for most of September, and recently LA County is averaging about 750 hospitalized patients per day. These numbers of daily hospitalizations are slightly lower than our numbers in early April, and they reflect in part better treatments that result in shorter lengths of hospital stays. Next slide. Um, when we review the daily deaths from COVID-19, we're reminded that changes in the number of deaths typically lags behind changes that we see in our cases 
to hospitalization numbers. Uh, on this chart, you can see that the spike in cases we experienced in early July led to an extended increase in deaths from late July through much of August. And again, though we're very pleased to see that deaths are falling, we remain vigilant knowing that if cases increase as a result of Labor Day activities, we may again see both more hospitalizations and unfortunately an increase in deaths in the coming weeks. Now I want to go to the next slide. Um, our recovery metrics help us understand how to best move forward uh, on our recovery journey. Uh, and this recovery journey is in part dictated by the state's blueprint for a safer economy, which provides us with a tiered framework that places counties in one of four tiers, depending on two metrics that measure the level of community transmission. Options for sector reopenings and permitted activities are aligned with each tier. And as a reminder, this tier shows us that the metric thresholds uh, that are set by the state are then used to determine when counties are able and eligible to move to uh, a new tier. You can move up in tiers, which, in, which would uh, indicate that you're reducing community transmission, but you also can move down in tiers if after you've seen a decline in community transmission, you actually start seeing another increase in community transmission. Uh, and although LA County currently remains in tier one with widespread community uh, disease transmission, the metrics posted by the state yesterday uh, indicate that we've reduced community transmission enough to begin qualifying for a possible move to tier two. This data that's used to calculate uh, the metric that you're seeing here, um, it represents case and test numbers from the week of September 6th through September 12th. So there's about a 10-day lag here. Our adjusted daily case rate for this period dropped to seven new cases per 100,000 residents. And the test, uh, the test positivity percent also dropped to 2.8. So you can see we qualify now by meeting the metric in Tier 2 for our daily case rate and for Tier 3 for our positivity rate. But I want to note, if you look on the state's dashboard, you'll see that LA County remains in Tier 1. And this is because we cannot move to Tier 2 until we sustain these numbers that you're seeing here or the numbers continue to decline for at least two consecutive weeks. Unfortunately, we did see an increase in our cases last week. We had four days where we were above 1,000 cases each day. So we're not sure that we'll have another week where an adjusted case daily case rate is at or below seven new cases per 100,000 residents. But we are heartened that LA County has met the thresholds that allow us to see our progress and in the future move to tier two. Uh, we will continue to closely monitor our data so that we can understand how to best effectively continue to slow the spread of COVID-19. But we are paying attention to the impact of both the Labor Day holiday, the reopening of schools for high-need students, and the reopening of hair salons for indoor operations. We will be working with the board uh, in the upcoming days to make data-informed decisions about all of the permitted options while we're in tier one for reopening other sectors, and that includes nail salons for indoor operations. 
I'm so grateful to everyone here in the county, our residents, our workers, and our businesses who have played their part in slowing the spread of COVID-19. I'll take the next slide. Um, I do want to give you an update on highly impacted groups that continue to experience disproportionate case hospitalization and death rates. This graph shows over time COVID-19 cases by race and ethnicity. These trend lines do show us that our cases have been decreasing across all groups and we're also happy to see that the gaps are starting to close. At the mid-July peak, Average daily cases among Latino, Latina, Latinx residents, and that's the yellow line at the top, were at about 200 uh, cases per 100,000 people. And this is four times higher than the rate for white residents, which you can see with the orange line. And that was at about 50 cases per 100,000 people. And it's five times higher. Uh, than the rate for Asian residents at 37 cases per 100,000 people, which is the blue line. Cases among black residents, the green line, at 80 per 100,000 people over this time period was also far higher than that for white and Asian residents. But as of September 13th, the case rate amongst Latino, Latina, Latinx residents, while still unfortunately consistently higher, than all other groups has decreased to 37 cases per 100,000 people. And this is now less than twice that of white residents who have a rate of 22 cases per 100,000 people compared to four times the rate uh, when compared to white people back in July. The case rate amongst black residents is now the same as that for white residents at 22 cases per 100,000 people. The case rate amongst our Asian residents continues to be the lowest at about 10 per 100,000 people. We'll take the next slide. Uh, this slide shows the average daily hospitalizations per 100,000 people by race and ethnicity. And we see similar significant declines across all groups and also a closing of the gap between Latinx and, black, and the black rate when compared to the rates for the other two groups. During the mid-July spike, which you can see clearly here, hospitalizations per 100,000 Latinx people were over three times greater than the rate for white residents. And the daily hospitalization rate among black residents was double that uh, when compared to white residents. But as of September 12th, hospitalizations among Latinx were six per 100,000 people. This has now dropped to two times the rate for white residents who had a hospitalization rate of three hospitalizations per 100,000 people. Hospitalizations among black residents dropped to five per 100,000 people. Asian residents have the lowest hospitalization rate at 1.7 per 100,000 people. While inequities persist, the gap between Latinx residents, black residents, and other groups here too is narrowing. Uh, while the number of deaths that we've seen uh, from COVID-19 across our county is devastating, we are, as you can see on this slide, uh, fortunately seeing decreases in deaths across all race and ethnicity groups. Uh, during the July peak, the mortality rate amongst Latino, Latina, Latinx residents was six deaths per 100,000 people. This is four times the rate that was experienced at that time by white residents who had a mortality rate of 1.5 deaths per 100,000 people. The mortality rate amongst black residents in July was four deaths per 100,000, 
and the mortality rate amongst Asian residents was 2.7 deaths per 100,000 residents. As of September 13, the mortality rate amongst Latinx residents decreased to two deaths per 100,000 people. It's now twice that of white residents and Asian residents, both who have a mortality rate of slightly less than one per 100,000. Similarly, the mortality rate amongst black residents decreased to a little over one per 100,000 residents. Last week, we had seen a slight increase in deaths among black residents, and we're fortunate uh, to be able to report today that the trend has started uh, to decrease again. So it's devastating that the disproportionality continues uh, to exist, and it has devastating impacts uh, among uh, communities of color. Nonetheless, I want to thank everyone who's worked really hard to address the disproportionality by uh, really extending our ability to provide both needed services and to make some policy changes so that workers are protected and families have what they need uh, to be able to uh, promote their health and the well-being of uh, all of their uh, community members uh, because they have access to the needed services, uh, uh, including quarantine and isolation support, and uh, they feel that there is uh, better access to testing and health care. So I want to thank everyone. Lots of people working hard to get this gap to narrow. The next, uh, I'll take the next slide. We do also, however, look at uh, cases uh, and deaths by area poverty levels. And we see that area income has a direct correlation uh, to the number of cases. Cases per 100,000 people in areas with the most resources and the lowest le levels of poverty are far lower and have been for the entire pandemic than those in areas and communities that have higher rates of poverty and the least number of resources. While we do continue again to see decreases across all of our communities, the gaps are not closing here in a similar manner as when we looked at case rates uh, by race and ethnicity. At the July peak, cases among people living in areas with the highest poverty rates, that's the orange line at the top, were 350 cases per 100,000 people. And that was over twice the rate of people living in areas with lowest poverty levels, the blue line at the bottom who peaked at 146 cases per 100,000 people. As of September 13, cases amongst people living in areas with the highest po poverty levels is 78 cases per 100,000 people. And this is um, double that of uh, the case rate for people living in the areas with the most resources, although we did close the gap slightly uh, uh, between the, the communities with the highest rates of poverty and the communities with the lowest rates of poverty. Uh, we also, and I'll take the next slide, we also continue to see higher mortality rates among people living in areas with fewer resources, even while all groups are seeing the decreases. The gap between people in the areas with the most resources and with the fewest resources has not significantly declined. During the peak, the mortality rate amongst people living in areas with the fewest resources was 6.5 deaths per 100,000 people, and that was over three times the rate for people living in the high-resource areas. As of September 13, the mortality rate amongst people living in areas with the fewest resources was 3.2 deaths per 100,000 people, which remains more than three times the rate of people living in the highest-resource areas. So what are we doing to continue to close the gaps? 
And uh, I want to say um, again, uh, thank you to everybody who's been working hard uh, in this, uh, you know, sort of effort to eliminate the disproportionality. Um, and I'm, we're sorry that we have not made the progress we had hoped we would see uh, when we look at our rates among cases and deaths in those communities with high rates of poverty when compared to communities that have much lower rates of poverty. So there is still a lot of work that needs to be done to close the gaps. And this work remains uh, importantly anchored in efforts to protect workers, particularly low-wage workers who may in fact have started working uh, in, uh, when we were all safer at home, stayed working while we were all safer at home uh, in businesses that were not able to provide uh, the appropriate uh, modifications, mostly because at the time we didn't know how important it was for people to be masked and for people to be distant. Uh, now we do know though, uh, and so our efforts really need to continue to be to protect workers, uh, particularly those workers who go to work every single day so the rest of us have all that we need uh, to be able to go about our daily business. Um, and that's our, uh, and that's, that's where we're concentrating a lot of our efforts. I do want to note the improvements in having access to widespread testing, our partnerships with community-based organizations to make sure that everybody has the information they need to make good decisions, um, remains also anchored in an effort to close the gaps. And again, I thank all of our partners here. Uh, now I want to update you on our, and, and you can see here where we've been successful and where we still have a lot of work to do. Um, I want to update you on our current status. I am sad to report 31 additional deaths today. 10 of the people who passed away are over the age of 80, and nine people who passed away in this age group had underlying health conditions. 14 people who died are between the ages of 65 and 79, and 10 people in this age group who passed away had underlying health conditions. Six people who died are between the ages of 50 and 64, and five people uh, had underlying health conditions. One person who died was between the ages of 30 and 49, and this person did not have underlying health conditions. This does unfortunately bring the total number of deaths in LA County to 6,423. We're thinking every day of the many people across the county who lost a loved one or a friend to COVID-19 and we extend our sorrow and our condolences to everyone who's experienced a loss. 92% of the people who passed away from COVID-19 had underlying health conditions. This number has remained consistent across the pandemic, throughout the entire pandemic. Remind everybody if you have an underlying health condition, it's important that you continue to stay home away from other people as much as possible. For the 6,044 people who passed away where race and ethnicity has been identified, 51% are Latinx, 23% are white, 15% are Asian, 10% are black, slightly less than 1% are Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander, and 1% identified with another race or ethnicity. We are reporting today an additional 1,265 new cases, and this brings the total number of cases in LA County to 263,333. This does include 11,615 cases reported by the city of Long Beach and 2,536 cases reported by the city of Pasadena. 
We're also reporting a total of 1,742 confirmed cases amongst people experiencing homelessness. 779 confirmed cases uh, are people who are currently hospitalized. 28% uh, of the people who are hospitalized are in the ICU, and 16% of people who are hospitalized are on ventilators. We have investigated a total of 1,818 residential congregate settings and non-residential settings with at least one confirmed case of COVID-19. 452 institutional investigations are ongoing, but we have closed out 1,366 investigations. This does bring the total number of confirmed cases in institutional settings to 34,574, with 17,478 of the confirmed cases being among residents and 17,096 are among staff. We're sad to report that 2,795 residents who lived in institutional settings have passed away from COVID-19. 2,512 of the residents who passed away uh, did reside in skilled nursing facilities. Of the 31 newly reported deaths today, excluding the deaths in Long Beach and Pasadena, three were deaths that were associated with people who lived at skilled nursing facilities. And again, we want to extend our thoughts and prayers with everyone who's lost someone they love to COVID-19. I'm reporting 3,693 confirmed cases at some point in the jail facilities. 3,265 were among people who are incarcerated and 428 are among staff. There's 257 cases total at the state prison. 193 were among people who are incarcerated and 64 are among staff. Uh, there are 758 cases in the federal prison facilities, 742 among people who are incarcerated, and 16 among staff. And we now have 151 cases at the juvenile facilities, 66 among staff, I mean 66 among youth, and 85 among staff. Uh, over 2.5 million people here in LA County have been tested and had their results reported uh, to us, and now the positivity rate is down to 9%. Uh, in closing, I wanna leave you with a slide that sums up the impact of COVID-19 on mortality across the county. The green line at the very top of this chart shows mortality for 2020 by month from January through July. The blue line, by comparison, shows the average mortality for these very same months in the years 2017 through 2019. This gives us a sense of how many deaths we would have expected monthly for this year if we weren't living through the pandemic. The difference between the two numbers, the numbers on the blue line and the numbers on the green line, uh, these are the numbers of deaths that we expected and the number of deaths that have occurred in 2020 is what we call excess mortality uh, that we've experienced in 2020. And the gray bars that you see at the bottom show what we call a cumulative percent increase above the expected number of deaths that occurred in 2020. And as you could see, as of July, we've experienced almost 18% more deaths than we expected due to the pandemic. In other words, when we compare the first seven months of 2020 
to the first seven months of the past three years, we've observed on average 18% more deaths than we expected based on past trends. And we know that the excess deaths are not fully attributable to just people who died of COVID-19. But I do wanna emphasize, especially for those who continue to believe that COVID-19 is no worse than a bad case of influenza, that this chart shows that in fact, it's much worse. And that we've probably had 20 to 30% more deaths in May, June, and July of 2020 than we saw in the prior three years for the same months. And while the percent increases, they may sound small, if you look at the entire LA County population, this is translated into thousands of deaths that would otherwise have not occurred. For so many people, um, over 6,000 LA County residents, um, COVID-19 resulted in death. And for so many others, tens of thousands, it resulted in serious illness. All these people, they're our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, and our loved ones. We can all commit to doing what we can using the tools we have to slow the spread of COVID-19. It saves lives, yours and other people in our community. And I say this often, but it's worth repeating. Please remember to keep your distance of at least six feet. Always wear a cloth face covering when you're out of your home and about other people. Wash or sanitize your hands often. Get tested if you're having symptoms COVID-19. Isolate if you're positive for the virus and quarantine if you've been a close contact for someone who's tested positive. And with that, we'll take questions. All right, uh, Dr. Barbara Ferrer here giving us an update, basically taking us back to uh, the early days of COVID now to what we're experiencing right now. She kicked off by saying that uh, LA County's made a lot of progress in transmission since mid-July. She says we're seeing below 1,000 cases per day. However, there's been some slight increases here recently as a result of the long Labor Day weekend. The uh, test positivity rate from uh, went from 16% in April to 8% in July to now 3% here in LA County in September. She attributes the successes to a doubling of testing, a relaunching of closures, and personal responsibility. In terms of hospitalizations, they're down to about 750 on average per day. She talked about the recovery methods, uh, metrics, I should say, the four-tier, four-colored charts uh, determined by uh, two metrics. Again, the positivity rate and new cases per 100,000 residents. Right now, L.A. County is seeing about seven new cases per 100,000 residents, which puts the county into tier two or the red category. Our positivity rate stands right now at 2.8%, which puts us in the third tier or the yellow category. However... LA must sustain or fall below these numbers for about the next two weeks before the county can move into a less restrictive tier. Now, LA County will continue to work with the Board of Supervisors on its reopening plans in terms of new sectors, while in still the most restrictive tier. Again, we're in that purple tier. That includes nail salons. All right, currently, new numbers here. 31 additional deaths reported here today. Three of those folks lived in a skilled nursing facilities. The death toll here in the county at 6,423, and 92% of those who died from COVID-19 had an underlying health condition. 1,265 new cases reported brings our total uh, case total numbers to uh, 263,333. 
779 people currently are hospitalized, 16% of whom are on ventilators, and 2.5 million people have been tested. We continue to monitor the Q&A that's happening right now with Dr. Barbara Ferrer and other uh, county officials. We, of course, will bring that to you, a full wrap on the NBC4 News starting at 4 o'clock. But in the meantime, we'll return you now to regular programming.